Well, good morning, church. Uh, yeah, that's exciting. Absolutely. Um, good morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name's Billy. I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here. That's a great honor for me to get to do that. Uh, if this is your first time, we want you to know that everything we do here is about connecting people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what motivates us. That's what we care about uh, from the what songs we sing to the way we preach to our kids' ministry, which is what you guys just saw uh, on that video. We have now launched a uh, new curriculum for our kids uh, called The Gospel Project, and uh, this is exciting. They're going to be working through the, the Bible this year and looking at how every story points to Jesus. And uh, also, uh, here at Connection, we believe that the primary disciple makers uh, of, our, of our kids are their parents. And so uh, I want to draw attention to the fact that on our app right now, if you download uh, Connection Church Vidaya app, there's something on there called the Family Worship Night. Uh, and what this is, is a weekly worship night for you and your family. If you have children uh, and it aligns with what they're going through on Sunday mornings and kind of gives you a step-by-step -step approach to what it would look like to uh, disciple your kids on a weekly basis. And so we really want you uh, to be a part of what God's doing uh, in their life because God's called you to. And so we want to equip you to do that. And so as they walk through the Gospel Project uh, on, on Sundays, it's also going to be available for you on Wednesdays or Thursdays or whenever you choose to do it during the week. And if you download our app, you can click on it and it literally walks you through, gives you the video, uh, gives you questions that you can ask, activities that you can do with them. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's been very helpful for our family. Uh, I know it'll be the same for, for you guys. Uh, and then one last announcement before we jump into 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are launching a new class uh, called the Equip Class uh, at our church uh, on January 30th at 11 a.m. And so if you're sitting in here and uh, you'd say, Billy, I really want to learn how to make disciples. Uh, I really want to learn how to uh, invest my life into another person uh, the way God has called us to. Here at Connection, we believe every person is called to make disciples. Every Christian is a disciple maker. And so we don't want to ask you to do something that we don't equip you to do. And so uh, every quarter, we're going to launch uh, this equip class. It's a one-week class. Uh, it's really going to introduce you to a resource that we have just created that we've worked really hard to create on our app called Equip. Uh, if you download our app, you can see the little button that says Equip. Click on that if you want to preview what the re resource looks like. Uh, this class will be all about helping you learn uh, how to uh, use it and how to uh, engage in making disciples with other people. And so January 30th, 11 a.m., over where we do our heart and soul uh, class right now, we would love to, to see you there as well. So uh, if you have questions, I'll be outside after service. I'd love to talk with you about that as well. So next, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, if you've been here the past two weeks, you know uh, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians as we will do for the rest of the year, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And we've been talking about this theme, uh, Be the Church. That's the name of our series. We've been looking at uh, what it looks like to be God's church, not go to church, but be God's church uh, in uh, the world. And we've learned about a lot about Corinth, that Corinth was a pretty difficult place to plant a church. Uh, the culture uh, was pretty wild, right? So it was kind of the Las Vegas of the Bible times. There was a lot of uh, sexual immorality and drunkenness and just sin going on everywhere. And then Paul comes in and plants this church and, the, and God begins to work. And so we now have, have began to read these uh, two letters to the Corinthian church. And uh, today we're picking up in chapter 1, verse 17, and uh, we'll go from there. So here, here's how it reads. It says, For Christ did not send me, this is Paul talking, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so early uh, last, last week in our sermon, we figured out that there was uh, an issue, not only an issue, multiple issues going on in the church in Corinth. And the first one that Paul addresses is this issue of divisions within the people of God. And so imagine that the church is fighting. And so they're fighting about who their favorite preacher is. And so there's one group of people that really like Apollos, 
who we learned was a really good preacher. There's one group of people that liked Paul, who was very intellectual and theological. He was your deep teacher. And then on the other hand, you had this group of people uh, that liked Peter, who really loved testimony. And the first, uh, really, he walked with Jesus. And so he probably spoke firsthand a lot. And then another group of people that basically said, we don't need the church. We'll just kind of uh, have our relationship with Jesus, and we'll be fine with that. And Paul's like, no, the church is created to be unified. And in its unity, God displays his glory to the world. And so it's important that as a church, uh, we uh, are unified together, that we uh, walk together, lock arm in arm together. And so again, this division that Paul addressed last week, he's kind of continuing on with this. And so they're arguing about who's the best preacher and who's the wisest and who's the, the best at communicating this or that or the other. And it's creating problems uh, in the church. And so uh, Paul very quickly goes on and says, you don't need to be divided over that. That's not important. What's important is the message that they are preaching, the Christ that they are lifting up in the message. Listen to verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now this is a quote. Your Bible should have it kind of indented a little bit from Isaiah 29. I know you were reading Isaiah 29 in your readings this week. I'm just kidding. You weren't. Um, probably. Uh, so, the context of Isaiah 29 is important to understand what, uh, what God's or Paul's trying to teach him right here. So Isaiah 29 was during a time period in Israel's history where there was a king named Hezekiah. Somebody say Hezekiah back to me. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king and he loved God, but the people of Israel were being about to be attacked by Assyria, which was another country, very powerful, would eventually come in and, and take them into captivity. But this time they're coming in and during that time, the wisdom of the world would say, if there's a big country coming in from the north, then you need to partner with somebody from the south and get them to come in and help you defeat this, uh, this, this country of Assyria. And so uh, they're thinking, all right, let's go get Egypt, which was the southern country, and they'll help us fight the Assyrians. And then God comes to Hezekiah and says, no, 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 no. I'm your God. You're my people. I will protect you. Right, which sounds great, but when you look at the size of the Assyrian army and the Israelite army, it's not a real good matchup. Assyria has them outnumbered. And so Hezekiah says, no, we're going to trust God and we're going to follow the leadership of God. And what happens is he defies the wisdom of the humans and the people and he trusts God's wisdom. And what happens is Assyria attacks. In one night, God, literally an angel of the Lord, strikes down 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And so we see Hezekiah trust God and his wisdom over the wisdom of the world. And so what Paul is saying is, I destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligent of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's saying my wisdom is greater uh, than uh, human wisdom. And then he goes on, verse 20, and now he addresses them. And he says, where's the wise person among you, Corinth? Where is the teacher of the law, Corinth? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not even know him. God was pleased, though, uh, that through the foolishness of what was preached to save you who believe. Jews demand signs and Greek, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so Paul's basically saying, don't trust in human wisdom. Like you guys are aligning and, and, and following after these human leaders but their wisdom doesn't even compare to mine. And they're not even, and the sad thing is, is most of these preachers weren't really trying to create followers for themselves. They were creating followers for God. But in that, people were beginning to align behind the people and their philosophies and their wisdom instead of behind the message of God. He's like, don't argue over human wisdom when the wisdom of God is right in front of you. Like, this is the wisdom that we want, the all-powerful, all-knowledgeable God is in front of you. And he's saying, and this is the first thing he tells us that unifies the church, 
is the message of God. Like literally, we're unified as a church. The Corinthians would be unified as a church because of the message that they proclaim. Uh, when, when, when we have the word of God, when we have the message of the gospel, we are unified around that message and we're not unified around whoever's speaking, right? So this is not Connection Church unified around Billy, who is the preacher, right? I'm one of the preachers and one of the pastors and I'm presenting the word of God just like another person would get up here and present the word of God. We're unified not around just me, but around the word of God and that's what ultimately unifies us because if we're unified around whether I'm preaching or somebody else is preaching, then we're gonna create sects of people or the divisions within the church on who's preaching. That's not what God wants. He wants us to be unified around the word of God. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, Think of what you were. He's pointing them back to their testimony. Hey, like, think about who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. It almost sounds like he's uh, throwing shots at them right here. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, he's our righteousness, our holiness, and he's our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so he says, not only are you guys unified by the message and by the word of God, you're also unified by your testimony, right? So uh, we read in the book of Peter last week where literally we are all the church called out of darkness together into the light to walk with one another. And so we all have that in common. So there's not one person in here that can say, Billy, I never was walking in darkness. You know, I, I am, I was awesome before God found me and God just kind of found me because I was the superstar. That's none of our stories. Every one of our stories is we were lost and in darkness and God has called us out of that together. And Paul says this should create uh, unity within the church. He wants them to know, let me listen to the language. Not many of you were wise or influential or of noble birth or you were foolish and weak and lowly and despised, but God chose you. Like God is the hero of our testimony. And so not only do we unite around uh, God's message, but we, re we unite around God's testimony in our life. And if you're a Christian, this is our testimony and it should unify us together as God's church. And then he goes on in chapter two, verse one, and says, and so it is with me. He says, this is not just you, this is me too, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says his message was simple. Verse three, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so Paul's pointing them to this idea uh, that, that God's power came with the message of the gospel and began to work in their lives. So not only should they be unified around the message and around their testimony, but it's God's power in, at work within all of these believers that unifies them, namely the Holy Spirit, uh, because that's what the Holy Spirit does, is unites us together as one. And so that's what this teaching is all about today. So the question would be, what is it that unifies the church? Uh, what is it that unifies the Corinthian church in the midst of fighting and quarreling? What does Paul point them to? He points them to three things. Our message, our testimony, and, our, and, and God's power are the three things that unify us together. So let's jump in and talk about those things. And remember the, why unity is important. We learned that last week because in John chapter 17, Jesus says, I pray that they may be one so that people will know me and believe, right? So the importance of unity within God's church is that outsiders look at the church 
and they see a diverse group of people working together as one, loving one another, uh, up under the surrender of God's word, preaching the gospel, the message, the testimony. They hear that collectively. They look at it and they say, wow, only God could do that. And then because of that, they want to know God and want to believe. But we talked about last week, there's so much division in the church today that it doesn't create, man, I want to be a part of that. It creates, ah, they're always fighting or they're doing something, you know, talking about each other or they're doing this or that or the other. That actually repels people from God. And so it's important for us, Connection Church, it's important for Corinth, uh, the, the church at Corinth to be unified because God's glory is dependent on it as we want God's glory to go forth from our church. So here we go. The first thing that unifies us is our message. Let's listen to verse 17 through 25 again. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. So is Paul like against baptism? No, because one of the things that he had pointed out is the people were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul or I was baptized by Apollos and that was creating division. And he's like, it don't matter who baptized you. What matters is who you were baptized into, which is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is who we're baptized into. He says, I didn't come, God didn't send me, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Verse 18, I want you to underline this verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul says that he, he preached one very simple message when he was at Corinth, and that was Christ and Christ crucified. He, he said, this is the message that unites you. And this is not Apollo's message. This is not Peter's message. This is not Paul's message. This is not human wisdom. This is not a message of signs and wonders. This is a message about Christ and Christ crucified. This is God's message. This is the gospel that was revealed to us and spoken through us by God. This is the message of the cross, the message of Jesus. And this is important that as the church proclaims a message, people walk out of the church doors hearing about Jesus. So if you ever go to a church or hear a sermon and they are not pointing you to Christ and what Christ has done and Jesus, and it's not all about Jesus, then you need to get up, walk out, and don't come back. Because this is the message of the Bible. We have to talk about Christ. Uh, Paul goes on to say it in 1 Corinthians 15 this way. He says, uh, verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So what is this gospel? Here it is, the good news of Christ. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are who are still living, though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so Paul says, I preached a simple message. The message was the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that God had sent his only son to die for sinners. This is the great exchange. This is literally Jesus standing in our place. The fact that literally on the cross, Jesus became our sin and we received his righteousness. This is the message of the cross. It's not a message of do better. It's not a message of a religious system or rules that we need to perform so that God will love us. Jesus didn't save us through philosophical wisdom. He didn't save us through earthly success or he didn't even save us through modeling obedience for us or uh, just giving us excessive knowledge about things. This isn't how God saved us. Jesus saved the world through his death on a cross. And this is why it is central to the Bible. This is why Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.21 to say this. If you want a verse that communicates the gospel, 
precisely. Here it is. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that's me and you, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And he says this is the gospel and this is the message of the church and this is good news for us because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do enough. We cannot earn the favor of God. It only came through God placing his son on a cross, punishing him for what we deserved and then gifting us through faith in him righteousness and reconciliation back to a relationship with him. And so any person that tells you that you can get to God any other way than that is telling you wrong. That is not the story of the Bible. It's not the gospel. And so we need to understand, as Paul says, that this message divides people. This is a divisive message. It sounds inclusive, but it truly divides people into two categories. The first is saved or the believer And the other category is those who are perishing or the lost. And we know that and we know which category people are in based on how they view the message of the cross. So let's talk about each of the categories. So category number one, the perishing, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't get it. People that are perishing do not understand why the cross is a big deal. It doesn't make sense to them. They think about it as a carpenter. Even the people of Corinth would have said, why are they talking about this carpenter that died on a cross? It would essentially be like us going, one of us going to an execution where the electric chair was uh, used on a person and come back and say, man, that guy that died was the savior of the world, right? We look at it and like, man, they're stupid. Why don't they believe? But that equivalent would be what it was because this is the claim that they're making. But what we know is the person that died, the carpenter that died in Nazareth on a cross was God himself. And he died to bring salvation to people. But to the lost person, that sounds stupid. Like, why would God die? And as you begin to talk to people who don't believe, That's what you begin because they're trying to make sense of it in their own minds of human wisdom. And so it takes a revelation from God for us to see. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 4.4 where Paul tells us that the eyes of unbelievers are blinded to Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Listen to it. It says, the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so the Bible gives us some really good examples of what this looks like. And you say, well, Billy, it's pretty clear if if somebody's perishing, they don't see. Well, yes, but there's different kinds of lost people. And I think it's important for us to know that because most of us in this room probably assume that we're in the believing category. But I think these stories can also show, hey, we may better... Uh, examine our faith. And so the Bible categorized these people, these lost people, as fools, right? And nobody likes to be called foolish or fools, but that's what the Scripture uh, says, is that to those that are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. So let me give you a few examples. The first fool is what the Bible calls uh, the atheist. So I would call him the atheist. Here's what the Bible has to say. Psalm 14, verse 1 says this, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So who is the first type of fool? Who is the first type of person that is perishing? It's the person that has argued away God. And listen, our world is full of people that are trying to argue away God. Some are trying to use science and artifacts and whatever they can find to argue away the existence of of God. Uh, Some are trying to argue away the existence of God based on the fact that they don't necessarily want to do what he wants them to do, or they don't want to conform their life uh, to to, to live up under his lordship. For whatever reason, they're trying to argue away God, and the Bible has a word for them. The Bible says that person is a fool. Because it's very clear in the evidence of our universe and the evidence of, 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 of just the world in general uh, that there is a creator God. Because life just doesn't come from nothing. And so as we begin to look at that, we have to understand. But also there are what I call Christian atheists. 
This would be a person that with their lips says, I am a Christian, but then lives their life as if God doesn't exist. Hey, does that hit home? I mean, this is our culture. This is where we live. This is who I was. Literally, yeah, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I go to church, but then I live my life how I want to live. And the Bible has a word for that kind of person. You know what it calls him? A fool. And so I know we don't like that, but this is what the Bible teaches us about that. The second example of the foolish person, or fool number two, is what the Bible calls an idol worshiper. This is a person that worships created things rather than worshiping the God who created the things. And so Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 give us this picture. It says, although they, this is people like you and I, although people claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Bounce down to verse 25. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised Amen. So Paul says the second way that this could play out in our life is this idea of idol worship. Instead of worshiping God for who he is and the things that he created in that order, like, man, God, thank you that you've blessed us with these things. He says these type of people put uh, a weight on money or sex or success or prosperity or power that it cannot hold. They begin to pursue that person like God, and they make that a God in their life, and they sacrifice to that God, and they love that more than anything else that they love. They believe they were created to become rich or created to be successful or created to do this or that or the other instead of created primarily for God. And then the third type of fool that I want to point out to you is a story out of Mark chapter 10, and this person uh, is known as the rich young ruler. This is a guy that is blinded by his money and his earthly possessions so much that Jesus is right in front of him and he doesn't see that Jesus is more valuable than anything this earth has to offer him. I want you to read, listen to this. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. He says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an incredible question. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That may seem like a weird response, but what is Jesus doing? This guy calls Jesus good, but if he truly believed that Jesus was good, ultimately good, then he wouldn't believe that money is better than Jesus because he would ascribe ultimate good to him. Jesus knows that. Uh, he doesn't know that yet. And so Jesus is basically saying, hey, dude, you think I'm good, but you think money is better, so that." Uh, is not right, and that's where you need to do. But listen to the conversation. He says, uh, how do you inherit eternal life? Uh, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. You should not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He interrupts him. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. So this is a good guy. I mean, it's not like he's, he's out, you know, doing all these bad stuff. He is a good guy that just loves money and loves earthly possessions. He's following. I mean, he probably goes to church. He knows the Ten Commandments. He abides by them. And then Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's very important. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this man, at this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for, a rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so we see this story from Jesus where literally this man could not see the value of Jesus because he was blinded by the value of his money and possessions. And so Jesus teaches his disciples, he goes on to teach his disciples the truth later on in verse 29 and 30. And listen to what he says. This is ultimately what we need to believe about money and riches. Verse 20, 29 and 30. He says, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come of eternal life. And so what Jesus is telling this man is that there's nothing that you will have to give up for the sake of the gospel that you will not get back way more than you had to give up. And this is the principle of Christianity, is that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And this is what we believe as Christians. And so this fool did not see the value of Christ. And because of that, he valued other things more than him. And these are all examples of people uh, that are perishing. And this is the first category. And we need right now to look at our lives very precisely and examine, is this me? Am I in this category? But the second category is the believer. So let's give you something to contrast that with. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God to those who are being saved when we hear the message of the gospel the good news of Christ when we hear the message of the cross we hear salvation i mean we get just plum excited like we literally get fired up about it like we're singing about it crying about it raising our hands about it yelling it uh, praying it whatever we got to do uh, to make it known we hear victory we hear freedom from the bondage of sin and death we hear victory over sin's power and sin's penalty and that sin's presence no longer has any grip on our lives you see for the believer when we hear the message of the cross or when we look at the cross it's personal it's everything to us Literally everything. It's God's love revealed for us. It's God's wrath that we deserved that was placed upon uh, a pardon, Jesus Christ. It's God's grace and mercy uh, literally revealed to us and the gift of salvation for us. It's God's punishment that was due us being placed on Jesus. It's God's willingness to come from heaven to earth and become poor so that you and I could become spiritually rich. It is literally God's great exchange. It's our sin being placed on Christ, and we get an exchange, his righteousness, which then makes us right with God so that now we can be in relationship with him. It's Jesus in our place. That is the message that excites us. And it excites not only me, but it excites Paul. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The gospel is God's power. This word power is dynamo. That means it's the same word that we get dynamite. When dynamite blows up, guess what happened? Things change, right? Things are different after this dynamite explodes in their life. This is the gospel. It's powerful. It's power to save us. It's God's power to save others in our life. It's God's power that continues to transform our life. I know about it personally. Listen, it has changed me. It softened my heart of stone that was, that was hard towards God, that wanted the things of God but didn't want to live the life that God had asked me to live, a life that wanted sin more than I wanted God. And God softened my heart through this gospel. The gospel draws me to repentance daily. It calls me and compels me to forgive others in my life, even when they hurt me. It it, it causes me to love people unconditionally, even when I don't like them. It calls me to put my yes on the table every day. It teaches me to trust God's plan, even when I can't understand it. Even when it don't all don't add up in the way that I want it to add up, it teaches me to trust him, even in the face of suffering, knowing that God accomplishes his greatest work when it feels like things are the most out of control. Have you ever thought about the cross? Can you imagine the disciples sitting there watching their Savior be crucified and murdered before them? Don't you think things were out of control to them? But what was God doing? He was accomplishing salvation, the greatest work that he ever accomplished. And so just because things look like something through your lens doesn't mean God's not accomplishing something bigger. He works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
So this is why we as Christians sing about the cross. Did you notice every song we sang this morning was about who? Jesus, right? We want to sing about him. We, this is why we take communion. What are we doing with communion? We're remembering what Christ has done on the cross. This is why we baptize people at church, in front of the church, to celebrate that the power of the gospel is still alive and still changing people's lives today. This is why every message you will hear at this church will come down, will funnel down to the cross because we believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It never gets old. It never fails. It always accomplishes the purpose in which God intended for it to accomplish. That's why we don't preach what my thoughts are. We don't preach what anybody else thinks. We preach what the Word of God says, the good news of Christ, because it's the power of God to save, to restore, and to transform our lives. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Which category are we in? And then we have to hold ourselves up in light of what Paul has just laid out for us because he says how we think about and how we view the message of the cross is what dictates whether we're perishing or whether we or whether the gospel is the power of God in our lives. And so when you hear the message of the cross, when you hear the gospel, what does it do? Is it something deep down in your heart? Is it everything to you? Or is it just a cool story that's kind of like, man, I've heard that my whole life? Does it move you? Does it compel you in the way that you live your life? Has it changed you? Is it continuing to change you? You know, Paul never got over his salvation. It's one of the coolest things to study is the chronological, uh, really just the chronological life of Paul. And you get to see all the way from Galatians, which was his first letter that he wrote all the way to 2 Timothy. And one of the themes that you see throughout his life is that he never gets over the power of the gospel in his life. Listen in Timothy uh, where he says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now this is Paul. This is, this is the sanctified Paul. And the more and more he grew and the more and more he preached and the more and more God used him, the more and more he saw how much of a hold sin had on his life. And the more and more he needed the gospel every day. This is what the gospel does. He never got over it. We should never get over it. And this is exactly where he goes next. He says, not only are we unified by the message of the cross and the message of the gospel, but two, we're, we're, we're unified by our testimony. Their testimony. Listen to verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God, underline that, that's the greatest two words in all the Bible. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of uh, from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, as is written, let no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul points the Corinthians to their testimony. He wants them to know that one of the things that unifies us is remembering who we were when God called us. Remembering who we were because we were all in this category. Again, you read this and it's like, man, I hope I'm not that. I hope I'm not that. But yes, none of us were all stars. None of us were all-stars. Look at the words he uses to describe them. Not many of you were wise by human standards. How many of us think we're smart? God says no. Not many of you were influential. How many of us think we're influential? God says no. Not many of us were of noble birth. You think you're somebody from the family that you came from. God says nope, not the Corinthians. You were foolish, you were weak, you were lowly, you were despised, you were unskilled in the things of God. Basically, he's saying y'all were nobodies. Not to mention the lineup that we're gonna get later in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, this is who you were, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunks, slanders, and swindlers. And then he follows it with, but God. 
but God. This is our testimony, but God. This is who I was, but God. He called, he saved, and this shows us exactly how God works in our lives. This is our testimony. Uh, Second thing, how God works. He chooses to save people like us. Like he literally chooses us. We don't choose him. He comes to us foolish, weak, lowly, no influence, unskilled, and he says, that's my guy. That's my girl. That's, that's, my, that's my daughter. That's my son. This is what our God does. God doesn't look for all-stars. He selects fishermen. Now, you think it's cool. You've probably seen Deadliest Catch, and it's like, man, these guys are awesome. They go out in the middle of these storms, and they're catching crabs. They're catching all these things, but that's how we look at fishermen. In this society, fishermen were the lowly. They were the lowliest of lows. They were the fishermen because they couldn't do anything else. They had no education, no family, no nothing. And so they would go in and become fishermen. God comes to select his 12 disciples. Where does he go? The fishing dock, the lowly of lowlies. And he says, I'll take them too. Give me Peter and Andrew first. Next, we see in the Old Testament, he goes to David. What was David? A shepherd boy. Heck, when they come to try to find David, they go to all his dad, go to all his brothers, and they're like, well, surely uh, you're not talking about David, the shepherd boy. I mean, he's small. He doesn't bring anything to the table. And what, is, what does God say? That's my boy. That's my guy. That's my guy. You see, uh, tax collectors in the New Testament, who are they? They're the most hated people. Not even no influence, but negative influence. Like people would never trust these people. God says, I'll take them. They're on my team. That's what I want. Give me the tax collector. Look what uh, the, the, believe, or the people in the world said about Peter and John in Acts 4.13. This gets me fired up. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, it says they were astonished that they, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. God specializes, listen to me, throughout the Bible, he specializes in taking ordinary people, just like these people in Corinth, messed up, messy, jacked up, sinful people, saving them, calling them, and then using them to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. Why does he do this? Because it's never about how great we are. We can't take the glory from him. It's, people look at what God has done. Look, there's Billy, I remember him, but man, God has done a work in him. Who gets that glory? God. I can't take credit for that. David, who takes credit? God, Peter, Andrew. Hey, they've been with Jesus. I don't know what they are because they're uneducated. I mean, that word literally in the Greek is ignorant and, and ordinary. Like these people are normal folks, but something's going on with them and the glory goes all to God. And this is what God intends. When anything good happens in our life, in the, it, people should stand back and say, that's gotta be God. That's got to be God. And we should live our lives this way. When somebody asks us, man, what's going on with you? God, God, because you didn't decide to follow Jesus. Like, your discipline ain't what changed your life. Like God did. Like God opened our eyes. And that brings unity because it's not about how good this person is or that person is or the family they come from or what color they are or what color they are. No, we're unified because the gospel got a hold of both of us. And it's God who gets the glory in our life. I mean, just think about Peter. I can go on forever. The rock of God's church, he said. I mean, think about it. If Peter came to Connection Church Vidaia and we were interviewing him to be a pastor and you were on the interviewing committee, he came in and I handed you his resume and it said, well, this guy's been a Christian for three years, no seminary, uh, no experience. He can fish, though. And Jesus called him Satan one time. Would you choose Peter to be your pastor? No. Nobody in this room would say, there's our shoe in. This is our guy. Jesus starts the church in the book of Acts. He needs somebody to stand up and preach. Who does he select? Peter. Here's my boy. Come on, Fisher, let's see what you got. Use an example. Do what you got. He stands up, preaches the gospel, 3,000 people get saved. To God be the glory. This is our God. This is what he does. He takes ordinary people and uses them to do incredible things. This is what you got to understand. Write this down. In God's eyes, our kingdom potential is not measured by our abilities. It's not measured by our abilities, not measured by our skills, not measured by what we bring to the table. Our kingdom potential is based on his abilities and his power at work within us only. That's it. 
In God's eyes, our kingdom potential is not measured by our own abilities. Our kingdom potential is based on his abilities and his power at work within us. So here's my question. How would your life change if you believed that? Like, how would your life change if you believed that what God wants to do in your life and what God wants to do through your life is not dependent on you, but dependent on the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that was dependent on the same power that led Peter to stand up and preach and 3,000 people get saved, the same power that took the biggest persecutor of the Christian faith and transformed him to the greatest church planner. Like, how would your life change? It would change because you would just put your yes on the table and say, God, you can do anything. And here's my life. So whatever anything is to you is what I want to do. So God, I don't want to live my plans. I want to live your plans. And I challenge you today, if you're a Christian and you're still hanging on to your plans, then you're missing it. You're missing what God wants to do in your life. Would you surrender to his plan for your life? This gives us great hope that it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on me. The book of Acts is full of people just like me and you that God used to do incredible, incredible things. And then lastly, Paul points them not only to their message, not only to their testimony, but also he points them to God's power, the, the power that has worked within them. Listen to verse one of chapter two. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, Paul wanted them to rest assured that their faith wasn't founded on the persuasive words of a man. Because listen, if I can talk you into following Jesus, then there's somebody out there that can talk you out of it. It's got to be deeper than that. And this is what the power of God does in our life. He's telling them, your faith wasn't created by the wisdom of Apollos. Like your faith wasn't created by the preaching of Peter or by the preaching of Paul. It was established by God himself through the power of his Holy Spirit. And this is the collective message of the Bible. You don't get saved or put your faith in Jesus because of a good message. Like I can preach my guts out and some of you will walk out of here and nothing in your life's going to change. But I don't rest the power of the message that I'm preaching in my persuasive words. I'm praying and asking God, the Holy Spirit, to come do a work in your heart that only he can do. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace that you have been saved, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Listen, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Even the faith that saves us is a gift from our God. We can't even take credit for the decision that we made. Like we wouldn't have made the decision if God didn't give us eyes to see that Jesus is better. And so even that points our boast to him. The spirit of God works. Listen, I'm telling you, the spirit of God draws people. Like this is what John teaches us. Not only does it draw us, but then it opens our eyes to Jesus and who he is. And not only does it do that, it changes our heart and fills us and makes us a different person. But not only that, it continues to transform our life for the rest of eternity until God takes us home. Like this is the work of the Spirit so that at no point can I ever stand up and say, man, I'm doing pretty good. Man, my discipline is kicking it right now. Man, I'm crushing. I've been to church six or seven times. No, the desire to go to church comes from God. And so the question is, is has this spirit began to work in your life? Like, is this spirit at work in your life? Or are you trying to do it on your own? Because that ain't how salvation works. Like, you don't pull up your bootstraps and say, man, I'm ready. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to start conforming to the image of Christ. You'll fail every time. 
and you'll burn out trying to do it. But if today you'll say, God, this is the spirit that I want to work in my life. This is your power doing something that only you can do. That's what Paul wanted the Corinthians to know. Listen, this ain't about you. Like this is about God's power at work within you. So I, I don't know where you're at today. I mean, I know what the message of the Bible is. But if you're a Christian, what unifies us as God's church is the message that we proclaim. You've heard that. Our testimony. Do you have a testimony? If you're a Christian, you have one. And then lastly, God's power that's at work within us, the Holy Spirit. And so here's my question. If you're in this room today, is the Spirit of God at work within you? Has it changed you? Has it drawn you in? Has it opened your eyes to how good Jesus is so that you're willing, unlike the rich young ruler, to say, I don't care what I have in this world. I want him and only him. And is that spirit continuing to transform your life? Has it given you a new heart? If it hasn't, today's the day that you lay it down and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. God, give me eyes to see. God, transform my heart. As he opened your eyes today, right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Maybe you're in this room today and you say, Billy, that's me. I want Jesus. I want him more than anything else in this world. I'm willing to lay my life at his feet today for the first time. Say, Jesus, you're all I want. And you just want to surrender your life to Christ. I'll give you that opportunity. The invitation's before you. I'm going to ask you to be bold. We got people that want to pray for you. They want to give you some resources. Walk beside you. And you'd say, Billy, that's me. Would you lift your hand right where you're at right now? Say, Billy, that's me. 100%. Amen. Anybody, you say me. I'll give you a second. Raise it high where I can see you. Anybody? So, Father, here's our prayer. God, would you do a work in our hearts? God, we want to be a church that glorifies you. God, we want to be a church that's characterized by the gospel message. God, not just from the stage, but in our lives. God, we want to be a church that's characterized by a great testimony. So, God, would you give us the boldness to share our testimony with people? And, God, we want to be a church that's characterized by your power, not only to save, but to transform our lives. So God, would you do that work in us in which we can't do uh, in ourselves today? That's our prayer, Father. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand up and sing with us?